It is so good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully you can see one in the chair in front of you or beside you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles. You can find this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 3, on page 238 of that pew Bible. And if you do not own a Bible, please see that as our gift to you. Take that home with you, please. Dig into the Word of God. We stake our lives upon it. As you're turning to the passage, I want to mention um, also what happened this last week was a huge youth fundraiser where over $5,000 came in, which we want to give God all the glory for that, and a particular thanks, a big thank you to all the elements that went into making this possible, all the people, the planning, the prepping, the food, the childcare, the serving, the cleaning, many names can be listed. We want to um, just say a hearty thank you for all the time and energy that was put into that event. The youth, uh, our prayer has been, it's to get them to camp. We are thankful for that opportunity where they can be equipped and sit under, sit under Christ-centered preaching in Glorietta. And this fundraiser, I think, will definitely help aid uh, that group getting there. So we're so thankful for what the Lord did this last week. And all the, the weeks leading up to that preparation, there's just so many um, thank, thank yous to give out to people. So just know we, we love you and we're so appreciative of all the work. So we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 3 now. And we're going to read, I'm going to read, you're going to follow along from God's word, the whole chapter. So let's get into it. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. The firstborn was Abnon of Ahinim of Jezreel, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Jephthah, the son of Abitel, and the sixth Ethrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David and Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth, that's Saul's son, said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Beharium. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, 
and he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my, to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that, that, you may reign over, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept, and the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not feathered as, fettered as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are, are, are more severe than I. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. Hear the word of the Lord. All right. Looking at this chapter from God's word, what we see overarching is that there is a strengthening of David's house. Now, the great and decisive question in those days in Israel was who is going to be Israel's king? 
So where we have been as we started in 2 Samuel, taking a glance back at the story so far, we've seen that after the death of King Saul, the king of Israel, David had been made king of a southern town, Hebron, over the tribe of Judah. But that was not all of Israel. So what was going on with the rest of the land? The son of Saul, Ishbosheth, had been set up by the work of Abner, who was Saul's military commander, who we see very much throughout this narrative. He set up Saul's son to rule over the rest of Israel. His placement of power had been the work of Abner. And we see as this has unfolded in these first few chapters that David in over the tribe of Judah and Ishbosheth over the rest of Israel um, has led not to unity within God's people, but rather Abner pursuing in chapter two competition against his counterpart. And by way of uh, this competition of 12 men from Abner and 12 men from Joab's military might ended up leading to much war. We're introduced to a long war. The beginning of this chapter has been happening between the two kings, Ishbosheth and David. And so there has not been peace in the land. As we work through this narrative, that is something that I want you to, to cling to. There has been an absence of peace in the land. And so as the story unfolds, Abner seems to be up to no good and wanting to see Ishbosheth and uh, himself gain more strength and power within the land. So during the long period of war, there was this reality that David was growing stronger while the things in Mahenium, where Ishbosheth was located, weren't going so well. And so we kind of see how this um, story unfolds before us. And the question is, what was going on that was making David grow stronger and Saul's camp grow weaker? The first answer to that question has to do with the, the, the description we're given in the first six verses that David's family is growing. Sons were born to David while he was king of Judah in Hebron. And in the far Near Eastern world, there was much to say about many sons. So from a worldly vantage point, the strength of David's household is obviously growing, and the perspective that the, uh, the Near Eastern world, the ancient Near Eastern world, an abundance of sons meant a large and growing company of trusted leaders down the road to deploy the resources of one's kingdom. Many sons meant a secure line and a strong future. This was from the world's vantage point. However impressive David's situation may look on the outside, according to uh, the far near eastern eye, there was a problem when we consider it from a biblical point of view. So you may look and go, man, his, his household is growing. This is that direct correlation to why the, the narrator, the, the author of this book would say, this is why his house is growing stronger and stronger. I want us to not lose sight that there were instructions given to those who would lead Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, specifies that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And as we're working through 2 Samuel and David's kingdom and his offspring, we will see the fruit, be it bad fruit, of walking in this, down this road of polygamy, multiple wives. I want you to hear it again and just kind of tuck it away. Deuteronomy 17, 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. One um, author who wrote on biblical sexuality in the Old Testament, Richard Davison, argues that the narratives 
actually give us signs of disapproval. Some, some have struggled. I've had interactions. As you look at polygamy in the Old Testament, there isn't a specific law denouncing it, forbidding it. But what this author is saying is that the narratives given to us in the Old Testament actually signal disapproval. So he writes, although these biblical narratives provide no explicit verbal condemnation of the practice of plurality of of marriage, multiple wives, including concubines, the narrator presents each account in such a way as to underscore a theology of disapproval. The record of a polygamous relationship, this is what he writes, and it's so, so true when you read these accounts, bristles with discord, rivalry, heartache, and even rebellion, revealing the motivations and or disastrous consequences that invariably accompany such departures from what God made known in Eden. So going all the way back to Genesis, God's creation ordinance of one man and one woman becoming one flesh in marriage till death do they part. This was his design. And when it's gone off course and there's this polygamy, plurality of of wives and concubines, we see the, the, the narrative theology laid out is that it always ends in heartache. And so it's helpful for us to see that according to the eye of the culture, very much so, this is a a mark that David's growing stronger and stronger. But I actually think that there are things happening in the way that he's leading throughout this chapter that actually give more of a, a biblical stamp of that reality of his kingdom growing stronger and stronger and not so much the plurality of wives being the the sole evidence of this strengthening of David's house. Just one more note. Polygamy leads a man to indulge himself in virtually ceaseless sensual pleasures so that his flesh begins to dominate over his spiritual life. And I don't know about you, but I, I think of Solomon And when we get to Solomon in the the recordings of Scripture, he starts off so well, and yet it is the hundreds of wives and concubines that lead his heart astray. So the pleasures of the flesh begin to so dominate the king's spiritual life. There's much application, brothers in particular in this room, when we give ourselves over to temptation, in particular sexual sin, and it begins to dominate our senses so much so that the light of our spiritual life grows dim. Do not be deceived by sin. You may experience pleasure for a moment, but it leads to destruction, and it will never satisfy. So that's King David growing stronger in Mahenium where Ishbosheth is located in Abner, a serious falling out is beginning to happen, and it actually also has to do with an accusation around a woman. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. And here's the question. Was, was Abner maneuvering himself into a position where he could usurp Saul's son? Ishbosheth obviously thought so because just, I mean, this is kind of common sense here, but in a royal family, to pursue the king's concubine, one of his women in the harem, would be understood as an, as an assault on the king's position itself. And so we're not told whether or not this accusation is true or not, but Abner never flat out denies it. He just becomes very angry stating, after all that I have done for your father's house, the steadfast love that I have shown, this is how you're going to respond to me? In verse 9, God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord had sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. 
and there was nothing Ishbosheth could do about it. He was in fear of Abner, the commander of the army. And so that little episode really kind of triggers Abner walking away and actually pursuing now a, a covenant, peace with King David. He's done with Ishbosheth. Now all the kingdom is going to be eventually given to King David, and he wants to be a prominent figure in this. And thinking just from the fleshly terms, this is not a theological move by Abner, but a political move. He will hopefully, in his mind, by moving towards David in, in such a way as this, this covenant and peace that he is longing to, to engage with David is to hopefully elevate his own status within the overall kingdom of Israel. So as a consequence, Abner abandons his allegiance to Ishbosheth and goes over to Hebron to find David. Now, what is so remarkable, remarkable about that exchange that we'll get to between him and David is that one who was of utmost enemy towards the king, albeit just the king of Judah, David, we now see a response where there is peace between these two parties. Where Admer was, Admer was the, the key figure in producing war, creating war, only when David became involved was there now a result of peace. So to kind of get a mental handle or framework over this long chapter, this long narrative, I want to break it up into scenes for us. So you've got one scene, Abner offers to David, this covenant agreement, and David responds with a demand, verses 12 through 16. Then we have Abner's conferences among the people of Israel and David's peace. We have Abner's next departure and Joab's anger. And then we have Abner's funeral and David's declaration or defense. So we're going to work through the chapter with our time remaining with those kind of scenes before us. So first, Abner's offer and David's demand. So in verse 12, Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does, this, does the land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Now, it seems that Abner is wanting to hold the keys, so to speak, of, of authority in this exchange. And the way that David responds as king does a good job of putting Abner in his place. And so it wasn't just an acceptance of Abner's terms. David defines his terms. It's only if his first wife is brought back to him, Saul's daughter, and that's restored. Not only that, as he sends this message back to Abner, he circumvents, so to speak, around the commander of the army and sends a messenger straight to the king of Israel, Ishbosheth, in a sense, letting Abner know that you may have delivered this message and this is your desire, but we're going to actually go about this according to my terms. And in a sense, there's a, a humbling of Abner just in the, the, the road in which David took to, to pursue this covenant agreement made between the two parties. Just a moment about the return of Michal, uh, David's first wife, that Saul gave to him. And just to rewind a little bit, take us back to 1 Samuel. The conditions in which Saul gives his, his, his daughter to David are shady at best. Saul's intention here is to require a bridal price that is so, so difficult to achieve that hopefully, as David goes to execute on this bringing back the bridal price, which were the, the hundred foreskins of the Philistines, Saul's hope is that he's going to be killed out in battle and he can get rid of this young David who's uh, you know, becoming greater and greater within Israel. That's how this all unfolded and his daughter is then given to David in marriage. Now, if you heard the narrative and what seems to be a very sad, depressing unfolding of the story, uh, Michael was, was married to another man, and it seems that this man loved her tremendously. 
who's weeping as she's being torn away from his house, uh, it's good for us to just be reminded of the, the context in which that marriage uh, took shape. Our hearts may go out to this poor man as he attempted to follow his wife on her return journey to her prior marriage until we remember that his relationship with Michael had been an adulterous relationship from the start. She was a married woman. Even if pulled away from David, he really had no ground to marry her in the first place. And so this pulling away, as sad as it may seem on the outside, actually testifies, reminds us that couples that begin in sin seldom end in satisfaction. Like there is a reason why God has laid out marriage in the way that he has and the covenant of that union and what it actually represents that when that is broken or defied, however it goes about and it unfolds in a broken, messed up way, it will lead to pain and suffering. Will it always unfold like this? No, this is a very unique situation. But there is a pattern in scripture that we must not miss the elevation here that we see of one man and one woman in covenant relationship, one flesh union for life. And what happens when that begins to erode? Or you start to think, well, maybe there's another way that will bring more pleasure and satisfaction. And again, the, the temptation to run down those paths, we get all these glimpses from scripture of how it ends. May we see, take note, and actually cherish, if you are united, husband and wife, remember that this is God-ordained. He is the author. He has structured it the way that he has desired, and when you walk in that, he's designed it for our good and flourishing. It is a good thing, so we should rejoice Remember and give praise. Then we have Abner's conferences and David's peace. So verses 17 through 22, Abner seems excited about this covenant being made, this agreement, so he gets to work. He goes out, he meets with the elders of Israel, he meets with Saul's own tribe, Benjamin. Very strategic who he would need to rally and convince that this is the next step. This is the right move for all of us. There is a convincing in these conferences. Those agree that this is the movement that needs to happen. And again, this is a pro-Abner move that he's doing. It's all about what's going to help him and his, um, and his own vocation and his own rise to more power and strength. One commentator, one old preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, tells a little story about a young man named Willie. Short little story, who crawled out on the ice and rescued one of his buddies who had fallen through the ice. And as he's shivering and taking breaths on the back end of saving his little friend, a woman is, is asking him, what what gave you the courage to go and do a thing like that, risking your own life? And in between breaths, he just simply said, well, I had to because he had my skates on. And you're like, that, that's actually what's going on with Abner here. You may think, wow, he's doing some really good things collectively within Israel to rally the people and bring the kingdom to David, God's anointed. And yet, man, if hearts were laid bare, He's doing whatever is pro-Abner to help him and his movement. And again, just a brief moment of conviction here. Many of us, if you're thinking Abner is an advocate, at least what's coming out of his mouth, of, of God's kingdom and, and trying to move it towards David and where it should have been all along, many, many professing believers will say the right things and do what looks like is good towards Christ's church, and yet what's really going on is a different motive of the heart and making much of their own little kingdom, even though it may look like they're doing a lot for God's kingdom. And I don't want to just leave that out there. I want us to actually check our hearts and hear 
What is the motivation of your heart to want to love one another and serve the body of Christ? Is it to be made much of? Why are you giving of your time and energy and resources? And if it's pro you, let this be a time to repent. Ask God for forgiveness and make much of him and his kingdom versus our silly little kingdoms. So that's Abner's side of what's going on. And then we get to David's peace. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, verse 20, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and this is the emphasis, and he went away in peace. That's emphasized again and again. He went away in peace. And I can't help but go back to the lyrics of the song that we sang, Jesus, thank you. Once my enemy, now seated at his table. Now, all that I have said about Abner to this point leads him to David's table. Whatever his heart motive was, all the war that he had stirred up against David, all the way back when David was on the run and Abner was was Saul's sidekick, chasing and pursuing and wanting to put David to death, all that had happened leading up to this, David receives him and his men and seats them at his table. This is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. You may have walked in this very moment with the same rebellious heart as Abner's life has led him up to this point where you have wanted to be the the ruler of your little kingdom, the captain of your ship, you are pursuing sin, whatever it is that has led you to this point, and yet this right now can be the day of salvation for you. That there is a king sitting on his throne and inviting rebels, ones who are at enmity with him, children of wrath, and offering peace. How amazing is that? David is just giving us a a glimpse, a shadow of the substance found in the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he offers all rebels who repent and believe upon him. We're getting just a a little glimpse of what we read in Colossians chapter 1, for example. When you look at Abner, he was one who had nothing, nothing good towards the king, and yet What we see is goodness uh, being presented towards him. Abner had much to learn, of course. If he was going to be a servant of the king, there would be much that would need to change. But for now, I want you to just cling to this. We didn't get to the, the Colossians passage. Once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's who you once were. But the peace that you experience in Christ is a radical change. But with Abner in particular... There there would have to be a lot of changes going on in his life, but what was the most important, the most important change for Abner, and we see this in the passage, it was a change in who his Lord was and who his king was. There is an acknowledgement here that David is his Lord and king. Now, I, I don't want to pursue something that's not revealed to us in Scripture. We don't know what changed in Abner's life. We do know that just soon after he lost his life, could there have been a miraculous regeneration right there and then when he's sitting at David's table and seeing that truly this is God's anointed and I want God to be my Lord and my King and I will follow his anointed? I hope so. We don't don't know. But it does paint a picture of one who was far off and complete darkness and rebellion being welcomed, an enemy now seated 
at the table. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that is your story. That is my story. You didn't just always know God and was brought up in a household that pointed you to Christ and you just were always a believer. No, 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 no. A child of wrath, the Holy Spirit accompanying the gospel going forth and where you were dead in your trespass and sin, a hardened heart, God miraculously through the work of the Holy Spirit made you alive in Christ. The new birth is an actual regenerating event that only God can accomplish in someone who is dead, spiritually dead, a child of wrath. According to scripture, your father is Satan outside of Christ, not God, but because of what Christ has accomplished on Calvary's cross. There is an opportunity for those who are Abner's to be welcomed to the table by the king. Hmm. What's beautiful here is it's not just Abner. He goes away in peace. The marvel of God's grace is that he allows the leaders of Israel, the elders, the people of Benjamin, to return to the one that he has anointed to rule and reign over them. I mean, seven years while David is in Hebron, kind of tucked away, leading Judah, all the years that he was on the run when King Saul was in place, all the people of Israel were complicit in many ways in how they treated David. And yet we see what we read in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. David celebrates God's grace that he would call his people back and finally grant him leadership of a united Israel. Now, we don't see that culminate for a little bit longer, but that is what's in the work here in this particular chapter. And just to kind of briefly look at what's going on in the rest of the chapter, Abner's departure and Joab's anger. Joab, David's commander, represents the kind of person who is a barrier to peace. And we see that Abner leaves in peace between the king. Joab is enraged that David the king would allow this to happen. The idea that a man of Abner's well-established opposition to David would now, would now pursue peace was more than Joab could believe. And I was thinking about this. Um, when, when the Apostle Paul was Saul and persecuting Christians, and he's converted on the road to Damascus, I can only imagine when, when the Lord goes to Ananias in a dream and tells him, hey, you're going to go and actually be the one that gives Saul back his sight. I have saved this man for my own purposes. He will suffer much for the gospel. I want you to go. And Ananias answers, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And I wonder how many times we respond to the conversion of a complete rebel who has done much wrong and ill and sometimes question, could God really save a person like that? Would I actually be willing to welcome a person like that into the local church that I'm a part of and treat them as a brother and sister? And we get examples like Saul who murdered the church, imprisoned those who were according to the way, and yet God took hold of this sinner, this rebel, and transformed him into the image of his beloved son. And Ananias is part of going and, and seeing what the Lord has done. Joab was troubled with this reality. How 
one of the king's enemies could now be a friend of the king. And so we see it unfold. Joab sends messengers after Abner and arranges for a private meeting. If Abner had gone away in peace, I'm sure he's not questioning now this return to have a talk. And just the setting, the irony here, he's called back to Hebron to meet with Joab. Going back to Joshua, this was one of the ancient cities of refuge in Joshua chapter 20, where, according to Joshua 20, the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that, a, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge for the avenger of blood. This was a place that was supposed to be a place, a city of refuge. But it is not peace or refuge that Abner finds. Joab kills Abner with a stomach wound, but he takes him by surprise and he kills him in cold blood. Abner had killed his brother with a wound to the stomach, but it was in a very different context. It was within war. And what happened here, we're told a description in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. Avenging in time of peace for blood. This is what Joab did. He avenged in time of peace for blood. And so there is a, a helpful distinction. We're not going to spend much time here. But what happens on the battlefield and what happened in private are very different and viewed very different biblically when it comes to death or killing. This is cold-blooded murder that happens to Abner. And so we have Abner's funeral and David's defense. And this is where we see the household of David growing stronger and stronger. David immediately and emphatically distanced himself from what Joab had done. He did this by saying, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And David even uttered a terrible curse on Joab and his family for what they had done. May God avenge the murder of Abner upon Joab and his family by punishing them continually. He lists terrible diseases, violent death, and even poverty. This was a curse upon Joab and his family for what he had done. I want to make note of this, and Lord willing, we're going to see it later in 2 Samuel. Justice and peace are not incompatible. For there to be justice and peace, they're not incompatible. We see a peacemaker among God's people with David's actions here. David also did four things with respect to the burial of Abner's body that were designed to persuade onlookers, the people of Israel, of his complete innocence of what had transpired and his trustworthiness to make peace amongst the people. So first, he buried Abner in Hebron. Locations, again, they matter. Perhaps this was the most honored burial ground in all of Israel. It's where Abraham and the other patriarchs laid were laid to rest in honor. Second, David himself marched in mourning behind Abner's body. Other very specific things. Joab in front, walking with torn clothes to express grief. In another way, also to express shame. And the destination. I'm sorry, at the destination, the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Third, David gives a a eulogy of sorts, an impassioned uh, words given by King David. The king lamented for Abner, saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And it led all the people to to weep. They wept over, uh, again, over, over Abner's death. And then fourth, And lastly, David refused to eat bread, fasting as an outward expression of an inward grief that he felt. 
So when the people came to David, offering him food, he steadfastly refused it, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. I, I just want you to note this. This could have been could have been the potential of being a very divisive episode in the land of Israel. And yet David, the one who is striving for peace, it actually served by his actions a unifying event in the land of Israel. And again, the wisdom and the discernment, God actually gets the glory for how David is walking out as his anointed king in this particular context. So, in the midst of this drama and shameful deeds of the two great commanders that we've been reading about, Abner and Joab, God, in the midst of this, was establishing an ancestor of Christ upon a throne. And what we are seeing in this peace being offered by King David is that his kingship, that God is instituting here, would be unlike those of other kingdoms of the world. So in a sense, this is David as the forerunner of his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are told in Scripture in Isaiah 9-6, is the Prince of Peace. As you think about peace, we have been reminded throughout this, um, this particular service of the reality of peace in singing, in prayers lifted up, in parts of scripture being read, and now repeated here in 2 Samuel chapter 3. I just want to make note of this reality. The forerunner of the king to come and the reality of what the king to come actually did in order to create the kind of peace that we're talking about here. So we see some glimpses of some wonderful things unifying the people of Israel by David's choices and actions in this chapter. But when we think about the peace that Christ accomplished for rebels like us, it required this king leaving his throne in heaven, being born a babe, living a life that we could not live, perfectly obeying the Father. This king dying the death that we deserve to die. So in order for this peace to be made possible, remember we are at enmity with God because of our sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. What we, what we require, what we deserve is death because of our sin. What this king did was lay down his life in order to bring a people to himself. So the king, in order to make this peace where, where there was hostility, in order for the king of kings, God, who is perfect, righteous, and holy, to be brought together with a rebellious people, there needed to be one becoming a curse for us so that we who are far off can be brought together and experience this kind of peace. So when you think about the Prince of Peace and you're like, man, Christ brings a lot of peace to the world, it's not in the abstract or some peace that you may have envisioned between two countries that are striving to have peace in the land or on their borders. This is, this is cosmic reality of peace before a holy and righteous God that only the King, the Lord Jesus, could do by laying down his life. And then on the third day, being raised by the Father. And after the resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father, who is now ruling and reigning at his right hand. This is the King of peace that offers hope and an opportunity for those who are dead, rebels deserving hell for eternity to experience communion and fellowship with God, the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to end by reading a little portion from John Woodhouse's commentary on 2 Samuel. It's so good. The great and decisive question of life is not what we achieve nor how good we become, and certainly not how much we acquire. It is, who is your king? 
It will do no good at all for us to be highly successful, seriously virtuous, or even ridiculously wealthy if you are on the wrong side of history. Likewise, even if you achieve very little in this life or fail tremendously, having a deep flawed character and lose everything you have, but you have the right king, all will be well. This simple point is difficult for us to grasp because we hate the idea that we are weak and are not masters of our own destinies. We love to pretend that we are in control. The truth is that we are utterly dependent on our king. We need a king who is powerful for us, one who is able to save us from our enemies and give us security. If we have such a king, all is well. If we do not, then our lives will ultimately end in failure. This does not mean that how we live is unimportant. On the contrary, but it does mean that what our king does is more important. The king of whom I speak is Jesus Christ. Those who belong to his kingdom know well that his powerful goodness is decisive. Of course, with King Jesus as our king, how, can we, how we live and what we do in our lives really does matter. But it does not matter as much as having him as our king. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your word. May we have eyes to see our need for the peace that only Christ, our king, can offer. And for those in Christ, may we revel and rejoice and meditate upon the peace that has been accomplished and applied to us through the work of our King. For those outside of Christ, may they experience once my enemy now seated at my table. May that be the word that they hear from Christ our King. May this be the day of salvation. May there be true repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone, we pray. All for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.